Are we done? Is it ready? Are we done? Is it Are we done? Are we done? Are we done?
you believe it? There's power that can empty out of the rain. <laughs> yeah. There's resurrection power that can save. There's power in your name. Power in your name. And my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stay.
Sing holy to the Lord most high. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon His people this morning. Just the church sing, and we sing holy. To the Lord most high, to the Lord most high. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Lord, in all these things we say and do, be glorified, be honored. We're humbled at your presence. Open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, but more importantly, may we open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. In your name we pray and everyone said, amen. Turn to one next to you and say, I'm glad I came this morning, amen. often hear the truth hurts or the truth will set you free and even you can't handle the truth many people are trying to find their own truth but it's become hard to pin down we live in a world where there is a desire for everything to be true but truth by its very nature is exclusive everything simply cannot be true in a sea of untruths truth stands alone it can be violently opposed. It can be ridiculed and mocked. It can be completely ignored or completely forgotten. But it can never be untrue. We have forgotten that our souls long for truth. It is our very sustenance. Every human being has an innate and powerful yearning to know that this life is not an accident and that their own life has purpose and that every single solitary life is intrinsically beautiful because it has been created in the image of Almighty God. That is the truth. And so, truth plods along slowly and confidently amidst a world of hurry, chaos, lies, and fear, never wavering from its unrelenting love song about a baby born in a crowded stable who grew into the perfect picture of love and justice as his body was broken and his blood spilled so that the truth of our very existence could be known. Because you are worth knowing the truth. for truth. Hey, thank you for your generosity in bringing all those cans of soup. Um, we had a goal of a thousand cans of soup. We've blown the lid off of that. That just shows your generosity. So thank you for your help there. I don't know how many cans we have, but uh, I've, I'm assured from um, David Burrier we'll get, a, we'll get a count this week. I mean, they just have been coming in right and left, so thank you for that. Also, right on your calendar, this Wednesday night at 6.15, we're going to have a short business meeting. It'll just be a yes, no, up-down vote. Um, I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ should take every opportunity it has to hit the devil right square in the face. I think we should be on the offensive, aggressive. And one of the great plagues of our generation is human trafficking. And the church needs to speak to that. More than just talking about it, we need to do something about it. So we're teaming with Garden Gate Ranch, and uh, they're a new ministry that has started to address that issue. They 
need transitional housing, and we've been talking about that and how we could help. And the other day, riding my motorcycle, as I've said, that's where most of my inspiration comes. I was on my bike riding along, and um, I felt like God spoke to me clearly and said, you, your church, the church owns five houses, they need one. Uh, that math is easy. So we're going to talk about selling one of our houses so we can help them build a house and get that working for the kingdom. So we'll talk about that. If you have any questions ahead of time, feel free to talk to me. Um, but we're going to talk about that requires a vote of the body. So be here tonight at 6.15. If you're not a member, you can come and participate. And we will be done before you need to be in your group meetings on Wednesday. Well, this is our last Sunday of Super Sunday Family Fun Days. I hope you've had fun, had a good time with ice cream and food and the kids playing and the train running and this series that yeah go ahead give a hand there that'd be great we've been talking about things that you learned in school that are not true and I want to emphasize again we love teachers at Brian amen let me hear your hands we love teachers this is not anti-teacher. This is anti-culture that tells us things that aren't true. We've talked about three of those. And we're going to talk about another one this morning and focus our attention on George Washington. How many of you know who he was? Yeah, about half the crew. The rest of you are, uh, don't know our history. How many of you know who George Washington was? Let me see your hands. How many of you have heard that George Washington had wooden teeth? Yeah, I'd heard that from the time growing up. He didn't. He didn't have wooden teeth. Over the years and well into the mid-20th century, scholars published studies describing, scholars published studies describing George Washington's teeth as being made out of wood. The problem is wood was never used for dentures in, the, um, in that era. According to the history of dentistry, dentures date all the way back to 2500 BC and they were made then out of animal teeth. You want a nightmare? Picture that in your head. <laughs> Centuries later, the ancient Egyptians made dentures from bone and wire composed of animal again, and they did a step up. They began to use human teeth, hopefully from those that had already passed. But wood was hardly ever rarely used. When George Washington gave his inaugural address in 1789, he had one natural tooth left. Oh, I'm so tempted to make some comments here. It's a fact that he wore dentures. He had more than one set. He had dentures made out of ivory, dentures made out of lead, and dentures made out of gold, but no dentures made out of uh, wood. In fact, his dentures made out of gold put him way ahead of his time by creating a fancy grill. He'd be right in the middle of all the activity today. <laughs> The most common explanation for that is that anything made out of ivory will stain easily. And it's likely that when he wore his ivory dentures that they became stained to such an extent that they looked like wood. And how many know even in our generation you don't have to have the facts to be able to tell the story. Well, there's another one about George Washington that I wanted to focus more directly on that you may have heard. How many of you heard that young George Washington chopped down his father's cherry tree? I've heard that story. That is an absolute fabrication. 
It's the most well-known and longest legend about George Washington. In the original story, little George was six years old when his father gave him a hatchet as a gift. Now, that's something that probably um, uh, child protection should check and do. <laughs> gave him a sharp hatchet. And he damaged his father's cherry tree. When his father discovered what he had done, young George, uh, he became angry, confronted him, and young George said, I cannot tell a lie. How many have heard that? I cannot tell a lie. I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Washington's father embraced him, according to the story, and rejoiced, saying that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand cherry trees. <laughs> what an incredible story. Isn't that a heart warmer? Except it's not true. <laughs> the story was invented by one of Washington's first biographers, an itinerant minister. Is it a surprise to you that it was a minister that launched a lie that's lasted till today? An itinerant minister and bookseller, his name was Mason Locke Weems. After Washington's death in 1799, there was incredible appetite for stories about Washington. And Weems said in January of 1800, Washington is gone. Millions are desiring to read something about him. My plan, I will give his history sufficiently minute. And then he said, I then go on to show that his unparalleled rise and elevation were due to his great virtues. Weems' biography, The Life of Washington, was published in 1800 and was an instant bestseller. However, the cherry tree myth did not appear until his fifth edition in 1806. For generations, teachers have been telling students that George Washington was so virtuous that he could not tell a lie. Now you have to think about that for a minute. You really have to think about that and realize how broken human culture is. That we have used for generations a lie to tell our children that they shouldn't lie. Anybody have a problem with that? Hold your neighbor's hand up. If you don't have a problem with that, I'm going to lay hands on you. We should, all, we should all have a problem with that. And I began to think about that, ponder that, and how does that relate to the church? Well, it's a direct correlation, and there's just some thoughts that I want us to explore in this Facebook, social media, fact-checking, fake news generation that we live in. What should the church's response be? And the first that I suggest to you is you cannot defend the truth with a lie. You cannot defend the truth with a lie. Think about that paradox. We're going to tell you a lie so that you'll be motivated to tell the truth. And exaggerated stories to emphasize the truth are just as bad as a straight out falsehood. I'm just going to tell you over the years, I hate to say this, I don't want to dissuade you from anything, but I'm going to tell you this, that when you exaggerate your testimony to illustrate the grace of God, you don't help the cause of Christ. Right. 
I've listened to people tell stories about what God had redeemed them from. And then you do research into their background and discover that most of what they described never ever happened or no one ever knew about it. I listened to an evangelist tell how he had been a drug dealer. And uh, to emphasize his story, after he came to Christ and was in ministry, he decided that to be for his story to be believable, he had to increase his tats. So he got sleeve tats so that it would illustrate to people that he had street cred. And none of that happened until after he was a Christ follower and in ministry. He said he was a drug dealer. And most anybody could remember is once in a while he smoked some pot and he may have shared some with a friend, but nobody knows. There's no arrest record. There's no criminal record of him ever doing anything. And when you exaggerate what he's done for you in order to communicate the greatness of the gospel, when you defend the truth with a lie, you diminish and defame the truth, the very thing you're trying to talk about. We need to be truth tellers. We need to be truth tellers. Unscrupulous people will use lies to defend the truth. And I did a little research and I was appalled about at how much pressure there is in our culture, even psychologically, and articles that are being written to defend untruth telling. How much has become part of our culture? There was an article in Time Magazine called When Is It Better to Lie Than Tell the Truth? And researchers say that there's a lot we get wrong about deception, truth-telling, and trust. Now listen to this. And if mastered, this is written by a psychological perspective, if mastered, lying the right way can actually help build connections, trust, and businesses. I believe that we should be teaching our kids, students, and employees when and how to lie. And that's a quote from Marie Schweitzer, a professor at Wharton School at, of, at the University of Pennsylvania, who studies deception and trust, saying that lying can build confidence and trust. That is baloney. It will build confidence and trust till I find out you're a liar. We need to be truth tellers, not practicing how to tell lies that build relationships and connect us. And I, I'm, just, I'm just saying to you, I, I, in our desire to communicate the gospel, let's not exaggerate our stories to try to emphasize the goodness of God. You can't defend the truth with a lie. There was a series of cassette tapes. How many remember cassette tapes? <laughs> The old days that circulated in Iowa. An evangelist claimed that he had seen more people raised from the dead than the Apostle Paul had. Well, I don't know how you'd know that unless he's communicating with Paul, and that's a whole other thing that you need dimming deliverance from. But he said that he had seen more raised from the dead. He claimed that he was at a meeting. And there was in Africa and there was, or no, it's in Mexico. And there was a man laying in the corner that had been dead for a week. Have you been around a body that's been dead for a few days without any embalming care? That's a horrific smell. He walked over there and saw that they had poured lime on the body. These were tapes that were circulating among some of God pastors in Iowa. I had a copy. I listened to all of them. He said, I walked over there and I cast out the spirit of death. And that man came alive under that pile of lime and stood up to praise God. 
Did that happen? I wasn't there. Do I believe it happened? Any more than, not any more than I believe you can breathe underwater. Which reminds me. <laughs> he also told about a time that he was driving his truck in Mexico to go to a meeting. There had been a great deal of rain and the river had swollen. But he needed to go anyway. So he took his truck and drove it in the river. The water came up to the doors. The water came up to the hood. The water came over the cab. And he said his friend who was riding with him said, underwater, in the cab, we are underwater. Yes, we are, but God's going to deliver us. And drove all the way through and came up on the other side and went on to their meeting. Okay, that's a bit much. I'm sorry. I am a skeptic by nature. And if you tell me you've got $10, I want to see the bill. Come on, how many? I know I need to work on that. I get it. But I decided I'm going to track this down. I just couldn't take it. So I made a call to a missionary that I knew in Mexico who knew someone else who knew someone else. It took a while, but I was motivated. And so I got to the place where he went to Bible college. And when I got the dean of the school, the dean of the school said, oh, yeah, we know him. (laughs) He said, here's the guy you need to call. I said, okay, um, I'll call him. So I asked him about this story of driving underwater. He said, I wasn't there. I don't know if it happened like that, but I'll tell you what I do know. A number of his followers have tried that. And we have found their trucks in the water and their bodies on the bank. When you mix a lie with the truth, you simply create a palatable poison. How many are hearing what I'm saying? If you make poison sweeter, it doesn't diminish the damage. And there were dead bodies all over Mexico because of an untruth that was being told. George Washington was a man of great virtue by everything that I can discover. But lying to prove it undermines his legacy. Well, how does that affect us today? (laughs) I know we joke around. Don't, uh, Don't take me too serious because I understand there's a place for exaggeration. I'll use it sometimes for humor. I'm not saying to you we're going to start parsing everything you say. But I do know that things probably weren't as bad in school as you've made them out to be to your kids. You did not walk five miles to school uphill both ways. Are you hearing what I'm saying? (laughs) It doesn't help your cause. And in Christian circles, we can become guilty of that as well. The Bible tells us that lies are contrary to sound doctrine. Listen to what Timothy says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful. The holy, unholy, and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine lying is contrary to sound doctrine and our message is damaged when we're not people of truth 
So when you post things on Facebook, when you say things in social media, when you communicate things to your friends, if you are not a truth teller, your message becomes devalued by the level of untruth that you have created or are mixed into that mess. We have to be people of truth. And I wonder today, when the church or the world looks at the church, how often they feel like Pilate looking at Jesus and say, what is truth? How can we bring them to truth if we use lies to try to reinforce the truth? So what I'm saying to you is don't make it worse than it is. Don't make it better than it is. God doesn't need your help to make your story more powerful. How many are hearing me? Amen. Do you have anyone in mind? Oh, no, not right now. <laughs> not this week. Our testimonies must be true. Do you know that's why James says in his epistle, Swear not at all, neither by heaven nor by earth. Heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool. But let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Any more than this is of evil. So what is that saying? It's not saying that we can't use curse words. That's somewhere else. That's blasphemy or coarse talk. When he's talking about swearing not at all, he's talking about using an oath. And he's saying you shouldn't be the kind of people that have to defend what you say with an oath. I promise, I swear by the heavens, I swear by my mother's grave, I swear on the Bible. If you have to do that, it's because you're not a truth teller. But if you live in such a way that when you say yes, people believe it, and when you say no, people believe it, anything more than that of sin, if you have to defend your stories, your message will not be accepted. Let's be people of truth. Yes needs to be yes, no needs to be no. And I'll, I'll, can I take this a step further? Amen. I'm feeling the anointing. <laughs> I can tell you of some young ministers years ago that came to see me. They had an appointment at 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock, they're not there. 1.15, they're not there. 1.30, they're not there. They showed up a little after 1.30 and said, we have donuts. And I said, you're going to eat them alone. Um, I'm not meeting with you. Why? Because you said you'd be here at 1 o'clock. It's now 1.30. And if I can't trust your word, you have no business in ministry. Come on. Help me now. If you're a worker on the job and you tell your boss that you're not feeling well so that you can go to Adventureland, I don't know, that would make me not feel well, but that's a different conversation. Don't expect your story to be believable. If you're not on time, if you don't do what you said you're going to do, if you don't take care of your responsibilities in practical terms, you're mixing untruth in with your message and the world will look at us and say, what is true? Because you can't defend truth with a lie. How many are hearing me? Second, the end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. How many of you would agree? <laughs> how many of you would
would agree that teaching our children to tell the truth is a good end. But when we tell them a lie to get them there, that lie is still a lie. Another article that I read about lying said, honesty isn't always the best policy in relationships. Here's when experts say it might be better to lie. So you might want to write these down. You can lie <laughs> if you have someone's best interest at heart. So if lying helps them be on time or helps them do a better job and you lie about that, if you have their best interest at heart, the age-old question, does this outfit make me look fat? <laughs> You don't have to lie, but you don't have to say everything you think. Those are not, those are not the same. Those are not the same. I will often say never, to people will ask me a question after church. And I'm just telling you, I'm telling you right now. Do not ask me a question you don't want an answer to. And I will give you the opportunity to back out. So here's the clue. How many are with me right now? Here's the clue. I want to help you. If you ask me a question and I say to you, do you want me to answer that? Your response should probably be no. <laughs> I'm giving you a way to back out because I, I care about uh, your well-being and I'm liable to tell you something you don't want to hear. I'll tell you another lie Christians tell all the time. I've had Christians say to me, Pastor, I'm sorry, this one, this one just cracks me up. Pastor, if you ever see anything wrong in my life, I want you to talk to me. Liar! <laughs> I've tried it. It doesn't end good. If it's not initiated and I initiate it, it's a problem. And my all-time favorite, Pastor, there's something I need to tell you in love. <laughs> I don't know, but what I've heard after that in my entire ministry has never been loving. We kind of use that like we do bless your heart. <laughs> If you say bless your heart, you can say anything else. He's dumb as a post, bless his heart. <laughs> I'm just saying to you that it's, they say, as long as you have someone's best interest at heart, you can lie. You can also lie if there's no time to change. If you can't do anything about it, go ahead and lie. You don't tell anybody you're late, just tell them, you, you know, that it starts at a different time. You can lie if you're giving constructive criticism. And what this said is, I do believe that if you're going to give constructive criticism, it's more palatable if you begin with constructive compliments. Don't just start with everything that's wrong. Marriage relationships, don't start with everything that's wrong. Start with some things that are good. But I, I will tell you, I've been there enough that when someone starts to compliment me, I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall sometimes because of that. But the reality is, this article said, make up something if you have to. Lie to make them feel better so that they then will accept the criticism. <laughs> lie right before a special occasion. What does that mean? You're on your way to a wedding. You're upset at something your spouse said. 
and they say, are you mad? And you say, no. <laughs> now, I've tried this several times and I'm just gonna roll it out here. I I'm sorry if this sounds sexist, but men and women are different. <laughs> Is that all right? I believe there are only two genders that are biologically defined and with those genders comes a difference in worldview and I can demonstrate that over and over and here's one test. When you ask a man if something's wrong and he says nothing's wrong, what does he mean? With most men, it's going to mean nothing's wrong because they haven't paused to think any deeper. <laughs> guys how many know yeah it's like yeah I don't know but you keep talking I'm gonna find out what it was and if you ask a woman your spouse a woman this isn't always true but generally if you ask your spouse female is anything wrong and she says nothing's wrong <laughs> that's probably not the end of the conversation <laughs> so to lie right before an event or did you um did you turn off the stove? Well, we don't have time to go back, so I'm going to say yes. If the house burns down, we'll deal with it when we get there. <laughs> because I want you to enjoy the wedding. And then it says you can lie if you're not close with the person. Just lie to him. What that is called is consequentialism. It's a class of ethics that holds that the consequences of one's conduct are the ultimate basis for any judgment about the rightness or wrongness of conduct. A morally right act, listen to this, a morally right act is one that will produce a good outcome. Consequentialists hold in general that an act is right if and only if the act will produce, will probably produce, or is intended to produce a greater balance of good or over evil. Good is defined as pleasure, absence of pain, satisfaction of one's preferences, and the broader notion of the general good. Consequentialism says that good is measured by the outcome. And so if you intend it to be good, you can do anything that you want to do. So biblically, does the end justify the means? Not at all. In fact, Paul deals with that very, very clearly. Well, I meant well. Doesn't matter if you meant well. If it's not based on truth, you've undermined the good that you're going to do by the poison that you've mixed in and the method, the pathway. I've said forever and ever, God is as concerned with your journey to heaven as he is with your destination to heaven. We need to look at the journey. So Paul is writing to the Jews and Romans and they're asking or he's asking rhetorically what advantage then do the Jews have? Much every way. But then he says this in verse 3. I want you to watch this progression. What if some were unfaithful? Talking about the Jews. What if they were unfaithful? Will their, unfaith will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Paul says no, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. If everyone else fails, God's true. But if our righteousness brings out, if our un unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? 
So he's building this case that the righteousness of God actually shines brighter when compared with the unrighteousness of man because he never fails. Well, if that's true, then God is unjust in punishing us if our unrighteousness makes his righteousness shine brighter. In fact, goes on to say, if that's true, then may we do evil so that good may come. The worse that I am, the bigger God looks, and so I will glorify God by ongoing sin. And Paul says, What about those who slanderously claim that we're teaching, let us do evil that good may come? All he says is, their condemnation is just. He doesn't even debate it. The end justifying the means is common today in government and politics. I I, I don't want to go very far down this road, but our government is making some really short term decisions that are benefiting the populace that we're going to pay for with pain down the road. I'm just telling you, we're not on a good trajectory. That's not Democrat or Republican. It's simple economics. You can't just make decisions and say that's a good choice because people have been encouraged. You have to look at the larger journey. It happens all of the time. Unfortunately, it happens in churches. It happens in, in uh, church polities, sometimes found in the choices we make. Well, what if someone finds out or if this happens and does it matter how we do it? Yes, we have to do it right and stand for right. Some years ago, I made the comment, we've made some changes here along the way. Some of you have been here long enough to know that we've made some changes. And I've discovered that change is not rarely accepted in darkness. Change is better accepted in the light. And explain why and what and how. And I'll never forget, a man followed me into my office. We'd made a change. And those of you that attend here know that we use this space, which is our biggest space with our best equipment, best sound, best projection, that we have used this place for banquets. And I grew up where you couldn't do that. You'd go straight to hell if you ate an apple in the auditorium. I'm just, I mean, that was, you just didn't happen. But you begin to think about it. Why wouldn't we use the biggest space for that? And we've done that. And we've talked about it. And everybody's all right with that. But I had a guy follow me in the office and yelled at me that I didn't have the right to do that. And I said to him, there are two things that you need to know. I will be governed by the bylaws. I will be governed by the bylaws. I don't believe in short-circuiting them. We've agreed to operate legally under a certain set of guidelines. We need to honor those. They're not the bane of the church. I hear pastors, I wish we could get rid of the bylaws. Why would you wish that? It gives order and structure. It gives us accountability. We need to have that. It needs to be done right. And you honor the bylaws and what they say and live by those. And you honor the Bible and what it says and goes by that. Well, what if they're in conflict? Then some idiot wrote the bylaws and let's fix those. Okay, are you hearing what I'm saying? I'll be governed by both of those. If you can't show me that I'm wrong by the bylaws and you don't show me I'm wrong by the Bible, then your opinion doesn't carry any weight. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The whole idea being how we get there. So if I were to just say, well, I think it's better and it will produce a good outcome. 
I think church growth is a good thing, and I hope you would agree with that, but church growth can't be the goal. Uh, the methodology has to matter because if we just want to grow, then we could do a lot of things that would pack this place out, but the means would unjustify the end. Are you with me? It matters. So when we use a lie to tell the truth, the end does not justify the means. Sin is always sin. And it can't be measured by outcomes, but by biblical virtues. Let's talk about Golden Gate that we're talking about. I think we'd all agree that they need to build additional housing. And those numbers have gone up and down depending on all the things that go with that. But let's say that we're at, let's say $150,000 to do the project. I think it's less than that, $120,000 to do the project. Building it is a good thing, right? But if I said to you, let's knock off a few convenience stores and pay for that, right? How we do it matters. How we give matters. How we live matters. The end does not justify the means. So I, I'll, I'll bring you to this conclusion that I really am concerned about. The end does not justify the means. And in our culture today, truth has fallen in the streets. Truth <coughs> has fallen in the streets. Fact-checking. Do you know what fact-checking really is? It's not checking facts. It's saying your interpretation of the facts don't agree with my interpretation of the facts. <clears throat> and therefore, I'm rejecting you as not telling the truth. There's very little discussion that happens today anywhere that's dealing with facts. It's dealing with feelings and opinions and interpretations. It's not dealing with the facts. In fact, the reason we can't have civil conversation in the church or in politics is because we won't look at the facts because we're afraid we'll lose the argument. Truth has fallen in the streets. Isaiah warns of that day. In chapter 58 of Isaiah, there's this great chapter about fasting and the kind of fasting that God has called them to. They're complaining to God that they're praying and fasting and seeking God so-called and they're not getting what they want. Listen, if you're praying and fasting to get what you want, you need to pray and fast until you want what God wants. And that hadn't happened. And he says, that's not the fast that I want. I want a fast that liberates the oppressed. I want to fast and cause you to live right. I want to fast that changes your life. Chapter 58, they're complaining about that. And then in chapter 59, with that argument and debate that's going on, Isaiah begins this way. God says through Isaiah, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Now, why would he say that? Because in chapter 58, they're saying, God, you're not doing what, you're, what we're asking for. What is wrong with you? And God says, my arm is not too short to save. My ear is not too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God's saying, it's not that I'm not listening or that I'm not able. It's that we're not one. 
He's saying, I can save, I can hear, I can respond. Then you go a little further in chapter 59. And this is what Isaiah records. Our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, our rebellion, our treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies uh, our hearts have conceived. And why has that happened? So justice is driven back, righteousness stands at a distance, and truth has stumbled in the streets. And honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. That is commentary on the culture we're in. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. We're not only living in a cancel culture, we're living in an assassination culture. I will cancel you and then I will assassinate and slander you. I said something earlier in this message intentionally and um, I realize the risks I take in that. But you cannot win an argument with me that there are more than two biological genders. You can't win that argument. And that's why we don't start there. Because that is ignorant, biased, and prejudiced. And you need to understand that we're living in a new reality. What has happened is we have oppressed truth. We have shoved it back. Righteousness can't enter. And once that happens, once that starts, good becomes evil. Evil becomes good. Up becomes down. Left becomes right. And there's no more, there's no more structure for us to build on. If the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? And that's the era we're living in. And I'm saying to you that the church has to be very, very careful that truth doesn't stumble in our aisles. It's stumbling in the street. We can't let it stumble in the aisles. Truth was no longer valued and anything could happen. Fake news, fact checking, lies masquerading as truth. Truth is not valued. Truth is not valued in the public sector. In fact, it is disdained. So what can we do? The only thing we can do, the only thing we can do is commit ourselves to do this, to speak the truth in love regardless of the outcome. In the book of Ephesians, we're told this, When he talks about gifts that were given to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry to the body edifies itself and comes into the fullness of Christ, goes on to tell us this. Then we'll be no longer infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, listen, instead, speaking the truth in love. We will in all things 
grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What will cause a body to grow and be strong and mature? Speaking truth in love. It strengthens the body of Christ. Truth and love must and can walk hand in hand. And we need to be really, really careful that we don't play by the, rule, the rules of the world because if we do, we will certainly lose the war. Pastor Nathan, would you come? 2 thoughts I want to close with. I'm just calling us to stand for truth. I, no one has said anything to me. I'm not after anything. I'm just saying in this culture, I think it's time for the church to say it matters to us what is true more than how I feel. It matters to me what is true more than what culture accepts. We have to stand where there's truth. Why? Because scripture says that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We are people of truth. And all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. So I'm just going to ask you, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be worried. Be careful. Can't have fun. Can't tease a little bit. Someone said the difference between teasing and a lie is about five seconds. You have five seconds to correct it. I'm not wanting to go on some legalistic. I just want to make sure that we value truth and that we are truth tellers. It's what this generation needs. They need to know they can believe us, that they can trust us and what we say will be true and our word will be our bond. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's make that our prayer on this last Super Sunday Family Fun Day. If we're going to have fun, we have to be people of truth. In this time of desperation When all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe We believe In this broken generation When all is dark you help us see There is only one salvation We believe we believe, we believe in God. You sing it. We believe, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion, we believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming.
coming back again. We believe. So let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing. Oh, in our weakness and temptations, we believe. financial support. Um, thank you for helping us continue to do what God's called us to do. And 